This ticker podcast is brought to you by Broadridge Financial Solutions. Sweetie? Yes? Honey? Do you know what that is? We get a whole bunch of them every spring with the uh, Land's End catalog. They fall in the mail slot. Yeah. Like, what is this? It's, this is my company. Yeah. It's like the thing. Right. What, do you, what, what do you do with all those things exactly? When you get I swap. I shred them. What? Well, I'm supposed to read it. And then... Yeah, it's a thing. Is it like the proxy vote or something? Hi, everyone. Technology makes things easier, right? That's what it does. A lever makes it easier to move a boulder. Of course, you don't always know where that boulder will roll. Well, in the realm of corporate democracy, technology is making it a lot easier for mom-and-pop investors and their sons and daughters to play a bigger role come proxy season. On today's program, what a fully digital democracy means for proxy outcomes. And IR tactics. The trend seems to be well established to virtual only. Rodridge's Kathy Conlon joins us with her take on voting trends, why retail shareholders matter, and how IR teams are using enhanced messaging to make an impact. That's up next, right after this week's Ticker News Update. Two new investor surveys show ESG shifting the ground under IR. First up, a Moro Sedali poll uncovers a thirst for better sustainability-related info on board composition and business strategy, with a particular focus on climate change. Meanwhile, research just released by Curly Global IR shows asset managers are throwing ever more human and financial resources behind ESG programs. This study also finds that, overwhelmingly, the IRO is the first point of contact for all queries ESG. Last year, asset managers launched a record 382 socially conscious mutual funds and ETFs. Industry tracker Morningstar says that brings the overall figure to almost 3,200. Collectively, these funds manage $1.2 trillion in assets, double that of a decade ago. And in that same year, activist investors targeted a record 900 companies around the world. Activist Insights' yearly review shows increasing activity in all markets except Europe. IR Magazine's Jack Aldane caught up with IPRIO's Andreas Posavac at the IR Magazine Global Forum in Amsterdam last fall. He asked Posavac about how the changing ESG landscape was affecting IR, and here's a clip from their conversation. For us at IPRIO, this, this is one thing that we really consider one of the big megatrends. Um, why? Because in investor relations, all of a sudden you have to face kind of different stakeholder groups, not only the 
the, the, the asset managers, the fund managers, portfolio managers that you pitch your equity story to, but all of a sudden you are dealing with them. You're dealing with corporate governance teams, which a lot of these um, large institutional investors have built up over the last couple of years. Um, you have to understand their policies and guidelines. You have to uh, all of a sudden deal with um, – you know, external advisors, proxy advisors like ISS and, and Glass-Lewis and others, um, providers of ESG data like Sustainalytics, MSCI and others. So all of a sudden, this role of investor relations in, 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 in our view is really changing dramatically. And as there is much more push from the investment management community to really take that seriously and, and be transparent about it. And finally, more proof the world is unfolding as it should. New rules mean every listed company in Qatar must have an investor relations officer. Newspaper reports say this wise regulatory approach, which should be everywhere for every sort of company, also mandates a dedicated IR section on every company website. Strategy and Product Management at Broadridge's Investor Communications Solutions Division. As IROs prepare for Proxy 2019, she's in a great position to know what issues will shape debate and how IR teams are using technology to drive outcomes. Our conversation begins with a look back at last year's shareholder proposal trends. If I look at those, you know, there was a, they were slightly down for the 2018 proxy season. Um, from the 2017, it was about 5% down to a total of 788 proposals submitted during the season. But support for the proposals uh, increased by four percentage points to 30, almost 33%. So there's most definitely, uh, you know, a slight trend in that one that there is support amongst, I guess, mostly institutional investors. And in terms of the types of proposals, 43% of all proposals submitted were social and environmental proposals. And institutional support for those proposals um, it has increased over the last five years. I guess the data we had looked at showed 19% support in 2014, and it's 29% in the proxy season 2018. So so those are some of the high-level items on shareholder proposals. There are also is some momentum in board diversity proposals, um, although, you know, companies are strengthening their own, their board diversity commitments and policies to negotiate. They really want to withdraw the proposals and they want to just strengthen their commitment to uh, board diversity. And that's an issue I think we kind of see across the board. There was some, I think there's been some call from some institutional investors that companies have to get better at this issue. So I think companies potentially feel the pressure um, to do a better job on that. Um, and I, it may follow along with, you know, when we saw, saw the proxy access proposals yep. over the last few years, you know, those declined in 2018. And that's probably due to the fact that companies have come around on this issue and they've voluntarily adopted proxy access proposals. So we may be seeing a similar trend in board diversity. So, so the proxy access is, has tapered off basically because that's uh, it's yesterday's news kind of thing. Yeah. 
<laughs> the board diversity angle. That's, that's kind of interesting. I wrote a story several years ago about that. This was in yeah. Canada. And they were talking about legislating uh, for board diversity. And I don't know where they are at, at, at that point now. In my article, I argued that there would not be a market response. And I sort of said there had to be legislation. But it looks like, looks like there, there is market answer to this board diversity question and engagement is working. Yeah, you know, it's it's a good question, legislation versus just it happening in some kind of organic way. Uh, I think we're sort of seeing a bit of a combination of both, right? Because if you look at California, I think, I don't know if it's a law or it's a proposal in California that companies incorporated uh, in California would have would be challenged on the issue of board diversity. So I'm not exactly sure what the law says in California, but it, it, there is either a proposal or some kind of law that is going to be on the books. Um, about the issue. So I think they're, you know, going back to the question of will it happen because of pressure or will it happen because of legislation? I mean, it may be that it may be a combination of both or it may be, you know, hopefully, again, follow along with proxy access where companies do feel obligated to do the right thing from, you know, the way they manage their company and then we'll do it without there having to be legislation. So it's not it's not surprising to me that there's sort of more shareholder support for for social and en- environmental proposals. What did surprise me was that retail investors aren't really on board with the social and environmental proposal. You know, they're not they're not voting for that as much as institutions were and I that just kind of struck me as odd. I guess it is a little surprising because you think people are very up on the issue of, you know, just some of the social and environmental issues out there today, just as a general part of life in our society today. So it is a little bit surprising. But um, in general, when you have retail investors tend to support management. um, So it may be just a function of their overall support for management than anything else. I don't know Uh. for sure, but that would be my educated guess. Okay, that makes you know, sense. if they yeah. have the stock, they don't, you know, they don't necessarily have the the resources to do uh, the extensive work that an institution would to understand the issue. So maybe their default position is to vote with management because they trust that the company they're invested in is doing what they want them to do to further their investment. So that would be my speculation on that. So that's on pr- proposals. I think you also just asked about you know, the way share positions are being voted. We see a continued distribution of information electronically, uh, as well as voting electronically continues to grow. Uh, I think the statistic that we cited last week was 95% of shares are now voted electronically across all the position, all the shares that we see at Broadridge mm-hmm. in the proxy season, uh, which was essentially a little over 4,000 meetings between February 15th and, and the end of June 2018. So, you know, the good, the good news is that the numbers continue to go in the right direction where there's more and more um, happening electronically, which drives down costs for corporate issuers. Okay, it, it drives down costs. Can we say, does it have sort of any effect on actual sort of voting? Is it, is it changing the fact that, that it's easy and electronic? Uh, sort of delivery and, 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 and voting is easy. Is it actually changing the landscape of how people are voting? We've definitely seen more voting happening on mobile devices. So we saw, uh, I think, 2 million retail positions voted via mobile device, mm. uh, which is up over last year. I don't know what last year's number was, but that's a number in the right direction because, you know, it's just an easy to be able to, you get your notification 
on your mobile device. You can click through, see the material, vote your shares all in a very streamlined process. So I think that's all very favorable. I think what we continue to see, the biggest issue is that there are still plenty of shareholders who are getting, retail shareholders this is, Mm -hmm. that receive their material in hard copy. So while we see a continued drive toward electronic delivery as the as brokers and corporate issuers push for that, you still there's still not enough adoption by the retail shareholder for electronic delivery. So you're, we're still mailing, you know, plenty of pieces of material to retail shareholders. And when those mailings happen, corporate issuers are using the notice and access model in many cases. And if they're using notice and access, that's where we see not as strong a vote uh, return as you would see when the shareholder either receives an electronic delivery or a hard copy package. And as I think you probably know, uh, retail shareholders, they decide how they want to receive the material. It's distributed at their preference. So if their preference is not for electronic delivery, then they are going to receive some kind of hard copy package. And again, it could be notice or it could be the full package depending on either um, what the companies decided to do, or actually what the shareholders decided to do, because if if a company does go notice and access, the shareholder can still opt in to receive a full package of material. So there is that option. But regardless, if the shareholder gets the material via notice, voting percentages are lower than all the other methods. That's interesting. My wife and I, we get stuff and we it, it all comes by mail virtually all of it comes by mail and and we kind of glance at it and then just throw it directly in the bin <laughs> oh you can't do that anymore <laughs> I, unfortunately i think that's what's happening and shareholders if they would open the package there probably is some notification in there about how they could receive that package electronically mm-hmm. And then they could opt in to do that electronically from then on out. So every position in their brokerage account, assuming it's a street position that we're talking about, then every position in that brokerage account would then go electronic if they opt in for electronic. I fear, unfortunately, that there are enough people, enough retail investors like yourself that have not opted in because either they don't know how to do it or they just, you know, they're just not engaged in the process. And so one of the things that we've done this year that is starting to drive more adoption of e-delivery is to make the packaging that is going out to shareholders more impactful. So it has more of a direct voting message or an electronic delivery message or both on the package to get the shareholder to take notice more and to take action and engage more. And when you do that, then you're able to either drive them to electronic delivery and or drive them to vote, which are the two objectives that we have in, in, in working with companies in this regard. Well, what are we talking about there specifically in terms of making it more impactful? Just photos or, you know? It, well, color. Color. Messaging, <laughs> color, messaging, branding. Huh. Those are the things. So if, you're, if you look at something, if it's a full package of material that's going out in poly wrap, I don't know if you're familiar with the way material is delivered, but there's some material that goes out in this plastic. It's called poly wrap. I, uh, I think that's what we get. And generally, it's it still is. I really haven't seen what you're just describing. We get stuff that is on really cheap paper, and it's thin, and it looks uh, just yep. very lawyerly and stuff. And, and we kind of glance over it, and then that's yep. about it. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's the problem, right? That you're. It's, it lo- looks like legalese, and who understands any of that? And I think the having the package be 
have an insert into it, a clear on one side with an insert that's facing the outside that says exactly what this thing is that you're getting, mm-hmm. with which the color and the messaging and the branding will drive you to notice it, will help to, again, get people to take notice and elect to receive electronically and vote. Uh, and But, you know, it's still only, you know, it's a fairly new effort, and we're still continuing to work with companies to drive those, you know, better packaging. And if it's not polywrap, if it's a note, it's an envelope that has a notice in it to make the envelope, and we've put better messaging on the notice envelope so that people can understand that this is not junk mail. Because the problem with the no, some of the notice, the way the notice looks, uh, it looks, you know, kind of very plain and generic, and it may look like junk mail to some retail holders uh, if they don't understand what it is. So putting better messaging on those envelopes to get the shareholder to open it up. Um, because when notice was created or written, the rule was written, there was things had to be done a certain way. So there wasn't a lot of leeway, I think, in what the notice looked like. But we're trying to help shareholders at least open the package and understand what's in the package to drive some of the outcomes that we're looking for. Hmm. Hmm. Is, I mean, do you have total leeway on that? Or, or are there actually guidelines that say, you know, that sort of constrict. There's not total leeway in anything. It has. It's not just the notice rules. It's even what you can put on packaging that goes out in the post office oh, and stuff okay. like that. So there's just definitely some uh, limitations or rules around the things that can go out. But within the rules as they exist, we're working to try to drive as much uh, engagement as we can. And it. And I should mention, it's not just about what gets distributed in hard copy, because even though there's still a lot going out in hard copy, there's also a lot going out electronically via email to retail holders. And with that, we also enhance those messages to make sure that that email is is noticed by the shareholder, has an impactful subject line, and mm-hmm. that the content in the email is clear and engaging with the holder. Further, as the shareholder clicks through on the links, that it's easy for them to vote through the click-through, as well as the material that's linked to the email is as impactful as it can be. So we and others offer services to make sure that the proxy document, for example, doesn't look like just a bunch of legalese, but has summary information that explains to the shareholder in fairly clear English what it is they're looking at to understand what the most important components of that document are and to see that information very clearly up front. And that can actually be done whether it's an online, what we call an interactive proxy, where the document is very interactive and very readable online. Same thing in the in the written document, because there's plenty of documents going out in written form. Companies, many companies are starting to put their doc, their printed document into better shape. They enhance the the printed document by adding color and tables and presenting the information in such a way that it makes it easier to read and then a shareholder doesn't have to wade through just legalese to see important information about what they're voting on. So I think there's a lot of good trends in information sharing to shareholders to help drive some, uh, again, of these hopefully desired outcomes, which is what I think the industry wants. 
making it impactful is good and, and, and stuff, but in our household, making it easy, it would be good. Because <laughs> we, like, we, we like getting the thing in the mail. We get this getting something from a company in the mail, but, but literally to get me to go from just kind of reading it over and, and, and kind of pointing it out to my wife and stuff, and, and all of which takes about 30 seconds to then go to the computer, turn it on, and then do the actual voting part, that's, I think, the big, uh, the big step to take, the next big step. It is. It is a multi. It is a two-step process. Certainly, when someone gets a hard copy package, they do have to take the second step of going online. That's why, ideally, we'll end up creating a fully electronic process at some point where shareholders receive information in in email or what you know, potentially in the future, text messaging, which is something we're investigating right now, or however they want to receive information in one another channel, maybe in Dropbox or any other channel to which they go on a regular basis. So we maintain the preference of all the where the shareholder wants to receive the material. They receive that notification in the place they've des- described, you know, they've desired, and then they click through and are able to vote their share. So it's a seamless process, you know. And p- some of that exists today to some extent. So, for example, uh, for shareholders in certain brokerage accounts, if they're on their broker's website. Uh, in their, you know, in their account on their broker site, which many, many shareholders do, there's a seamless interface between that broker's website and Broadridge so that the shareholder can vote their shares through the broker's website. That's another really important effort because that, again, is a place that shareholders tend to be already, and they don't have to take that jumping off point from one place to another. And so I agree with you. I think creating a seamless experience is going to be really important. Now, Again, if it's a person receiving a hard copy document, it's going to be hard. there's not a lot of options there beyond if they want to fill out the voting instruction form that is re- delivered with the hard copy package. Yeah. That's certainly their prerogative, and we still get plenty of vote returns that way. But you know, ideally, we get we eventually get everyone onto an f- electronic process, and that'll certainly uh, be a great outcome. I'm just wondering if if suddenly a whole bunch of retail investors are going to suddenly vote and it's easy for them to vote. I, I think it might change the whole complexion of uh, you know the outcomes of these votes to a certain extent because they were kind of out of the process before and maybe they'll change change outcomes a bit. I mean, I think it's possible, you know, and I'm not, I think it certainly would, you know, I think it would be good to have the retail investor participate more in the process and have a balance you know, of the concentration of voting power in institutions, right? I think that it would be great to have that diversity of viewpoint uh, in elections. So I, I think it could be pretty powerful for companies, and I, but I certainly think the company um, will have to be, you know, messaging to their institution and their retail holders, so they'll want to engage both audiences in a, in a situation where the retail is more engaged than they are today. Yeah. And and I think that I think electronically they can do that through some of the methods I mentioned, or certainly in the hard copy to, through the other you know the enhanced packaging and other methods to drive um, better engagement. So I think there's multiple ways and right. Because, like, you don't really know which way it would go. It, it's just kind of maybe they were, will suddenly vote against management if it's really easy to vote. And there could be just sort of a, almost an artifact. They'll just sort of, just because they're feeling ornery or something, suddenly the retail might not be that sort of management-friendly vote anymore. <laughs> I've heard people say, and I, of course, I, it's a good question, right? Like, what would happen when retail votes more? But the, the history 
tells us they vote with management or they vote with their feet. And I've certainly heard others comment on that, that if they, you know, as a retail holder, if you don't like the company, you'll, you'll just sell the stock. It's, you're not like an investor that may have a reason why they can't sell the stock, that as an investor, you can just sell it. So uh, potentially that still holds here. It's, re- it's hard for me to say, but it, w- it will be interesting to watch it happen. And, but, you know, history tells us that retail will more likely vote with management. Your Ballywick is sort of shareholder, virtual shareholder meetings. That's a trend with legs, it seems. Uh, the fact that many are just virtual only is, uh, is kind of interesting. It would be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, Agreed. Although I, I think the trend is very strongly to virtual only. Yeah. So the trend, you know, where I think, you know, a couple of years ago, not a couple of years ago, maybe three or four years ago, it was um, maybe 60% or 70% virtual only. Now it's 90 something percent. So the trend seems to be well established to virtual only. Is there any sort of discernible, you know, correlation between virtual only and how, how people vote on various proposals? There's no correlation no. of going virtual and then any kind of vote change. The votes are the same. The number of votes reaching quorum, everything is pretty much status quo for companies. Because I think for most shareholders, virtual only, a virtual meeting is not an issue for the vast majority of shareholders. So there's not an issue here for companies. I do think there's a handful of vocal critics of virtual only meetings that you know are concerned about the uh, ability for shareholders to look a director in the eye mm-hmm. um, and have their voice heard. So I, that is the issue. I, I believe the issue is for a very small group of institutional investors as well as some you know industry people who talk about these issues in general with the shareholders we've spoken with as well as uh, retail investors that we've polled. They like the concept because it is it saves money for the company and it makes access to the shareholder meeting easier. For hybrid meetings, which, you know, I guess a lot of people could say, well, that would be the ideal. You have the virtual component with the physical component. For a company, um, you know, they, for most companies, the number, the, the work that goes into having a physical shareholder meeting for the number of people that show up, it's, it's, it's a lot of cost and a lot of effort for almost no return for most companies. It's not every company, and I'd certainly say there are exceptions to every rule, but for most companies, they're not getting any attendance at their annual meetings. So for them to have to support both a physical meeting and a virtual meeting when they can get the same or more attendance by going virtual and save cost and save a lot of effort, I, it makes a lot more sense um, for the company to go the virtual-only route. I think certainly for certain companies, it makes uh, sense for the company to do a hybrid, depending on you know their shareholder base. Mm-hmm. But I think for more, you know, I don't know if what percentage it is. It's well into the ninety, it's ninety plus percent that it would make more sense to do virtual only. Now that being said, peop, you know there are those that oppose it, uh, and again would prefer the company to go to hybrid. I will just tell you in my experience in dealing with companies. They're not making the choice between hybrid and virtual only. If, if they have to go hybrid, they're going to go to physical because they don't, they don't necessarily want to do both because there is work involved to do both parts of the meeting hmm. um, and to get the teams prepared to do a virtual and a physical meeting. Even though it's all happening at the same time, it's still perceived as a lot of work for them. And, and the annual meeting is a very important event. The companies 
most companies put a lot of effort into their annual meetings and they want it to go really well. So, and especially if you have limited resources, you're not necessarily going to do the hybrid because it just maybe makes, um, you know, just adds additional workload as you're preparing for this very important event. So, hence the sort of the trend towards the virtual only, and I guess that's mostly smaller companies. Is is, is the are, are there any big companies doing virtual only? Or there are big companies to do. That's the interesting thing. So there are. You know, I think it started most, mostly with small companies and that the larger companies were doing hybrid, but now we're seeing most, almost all the companies that are doing virtual meetings are doing virtual-only meetings. Huh. So it's, it's the trend seems to be at all size levels. And the only com- but the only companies that do hybrid are large companies. You don't see any small companies doing hybrid. So that sort of it holds in that regard. You mentioned, you mentioned there's not much really shareholder resistance to that. There's maybe some pockets, but is for an IR person and their role, I mean, how would, they, how would they pitch that to shareholders to say, we're going virtual only? Do you find that certain ways, certain sort of messages work better than others? You said, you know, it saves money and shareholders want to hear that, but maybe, maybe that's not really resonating with them or... We, we actually recommend when companies are considering going virtual only from physical, we recommend they talk to their shareholders in advance and ask them because there's no reason to go down this path and then get a lot of resistance from your shareholders. And we find that companies will do exactly that. They'll ask some of their shareholders. So in conversations in their regular engagement, they'll ask them what they think about it. So um, and if their shareholders were really resistant, maybe they should stick with a physical meeting or do a hybrid meeting if they are if they have the you know resources and time to do that. So we 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 know it's already happening that companies are that are considering virtual only are asking the shareholders. This is not and these are not hastily made decisions to go virtual only. In our experience, uh, companies are can take a year or two. You know where where they'll ask for information. Uh, they'll want to understand exactly what goes into it. They'll want to speak with their management and their board. Mm-hmm. So there's a very thoughtful process that goes into deciding to go virtual only. And again, one of the one of the things they do, often do is ask their shareholders and ask their constituents. And that's you know so and that's a recommended approach because you really want to do. I think companies should do the right thing by their shareholder base when they go whatever meeting they do, because the point is to have their shareholders attend the meeting if possible and engage in the meeting. So that would be our recommendation to companies. And we're seeing it that pays off. Now, again, that being said, there's still resistance out there. How would would you actually do that? Uh, I mean, the pitch is we're going to save money this way, essentially, right? We're going to save money and allow more access to uh, for share, all shareholders, retail and institution, whichever shareholder, there's more access via a virtual meeting than there is with a physical meeting. Because if you think about it, getting to a physical meeting for most shareholders, at what big or small, is very difficult because, it, you know, unless you live in the city where the meeting is taking place, mm-hmm. you would have to get to the meeting. And, and that's why there's no one attending many meetings because it's impossible for shareholders to get there. It's not like the olden days where people were buying their local utility and then showing up at the meeting. I mean, mo- you know, if I own Intel in California and I live in New York, it's hard for me to get to Intel's uh, right. physical meeting. So that that's the dynamic. So for companies to allow access to shareholders to their meeting, uh, having it virtually allows that access. And I think one of the issues that, you know, you hear, it's, you know, these, those who are opposed to virtual meetings say, well, you have to give shareholders the ability to look management in the eye. But that 
does that actually exist today in any real way? Like if I, again, if I live in New York and I want to go to Intel's meeting, you know, unless I want to buy a plane ticket out to California, I don't actually have that ability. So I think um, to sort of, that's a broad sort of argument, but I think being giving me the access to the company virtually so I can ask my questions and vote my shares at the meeting, I think is much more easily done, for, again, for most companies via the virtual um, capability. And if we, if we think physical is better, I don't think that's actually driving, certainly not driving retail engagement um, because the retail holder is, it tends not to go to these meetings. And, and you said that it's, if I remember, you said there's really no evidence that it's affecting sort of voting outcomes, except the physical meeting is a great place for the media to, to sort of go and, and talk to disgruntled shareholders or what have you and, and, and sort of make a bigger issue out of it than, than perhaps the company might want. I mean, certainly that's true, I guess, in physical meetings. It's hard for me to comment on that. Um, but uh, I would say that the one, you know, in a virtual component, you know, non-shareholder attendees can also attend a virtual meeting. And while they may not be able to directly ask a shareholder question, they can hear the questions that the shareholder is asking so they can get a sense of the meeting as well. So I don't think that's lost in a virtual meeting. Uh, but I, I do understand your point that there, you know, there is that mechanism of uh, the media being able to ask shareholders. But I think that if we looked at the numbers of times that media shows up at anyone's physical meeting, the percentages are really low. And to create a path that virtual meetings are not acceptable because of a very small percentage of times that that it wouldn't make sense, that doesn't, that seems like to be disabling access for uh, the individual investor through what I think is a great mechanism for them to be able to attend meetings that they don't have today unless the company's doing a virtual meeting. You know, I'm, I'm trying to trying to figure out how this is going to ultimately affect voting outcomes and, and sort of activism. And I guess it would, you know, just my gut feeling is it would kind of suppress it a little bit or, or you know, suppress people getting on the bandwagon of, of, of whatever the issue is that the, uh, the activists or uh, sort of the gadflies are, are protesting against. Virtual meetings are not going to have any effect on voting outcomes because most voting, whether it's retail or institutional, it's happening prior to the meeting. I mean, institutions vote before the meeting. So the meeting has no impact. It's completely immaterial, the voting, to the, what's happening at, at a physical meeting or a virtual meeting. There's absolutely no impact. Yeah, it's kind of after the fact, right? It's an after the fact. So it's really just about the ability. So if we assume voting is off the table as an issue, then it's the ability to talk to the management and ask them their questions and express your concerns. And in that question, I say virtual meetings give far more access than a physical meeting in most cases. And when we're talking virtual, we're talking mostly audio, right? Or, or is there usually... Correct. Okay. Correct. It's actually, that's another trend. If you think about the, you know, the format of the meeting, uh, the, the company can choose audio or video, and it's definitely the trend is toward audio. And I, I think that's a function of a couple of things. Number one, the cost of doing a video. It, it is a lot more expensive to do a video production than it is to do an audio production. And number two, I think it's a comfort with the technology. You know, from the company's perspective, they're used to doing earnings calls on a quarterly basis. So they're used to the webcasting format, which is an, generally an audio format. So mm -hmm. I think it's that, that adds to the dynamic of being comfortable doing an audio webcast meeting. I, I guess if, if the trend is that way, um, although I guess the technology will catch up, I'm thinking 
you know, Kathy, like 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 really virtual, like virtual reality meetings. What is it called? Second life kind of thing, where where you yeah. can kind of almost Go look management the in the digital eye, sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I look forward to the day of that because I do think that would be a, a great place, right, to end up where you feel you're virtual, but you feel like you're physically, you know, you feel like you're there. I think that will be a great place to end up. We're not there yet. But I think what we need is that we need a continued interest in and adoption of virtual meetings so that investments can be made in enhancing the technology so we end up in the right place. Kathy Conlon, uh, thanks for sharing your insights with us. Thanks for your time. And that's all for your Ticker Podcast this week. So just what is the allure of a full virtual AGM solution? Kathy Conlon will be back with us again later this month, and with her, Jack Nielsen, Cardiovascular Systems Incorporated's Vice President of Investor Relations and Corporate Communications. CSI has gone full virtual when it comes to AGMs. I hope you'll join us for that. Thanks for engaging. In Montreal, I'm Jeff Cassandra.